Hey everyone, this is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Lead. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together. So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning again. This would normally be the time where we would dive in to our catechism question. But seeing how, as over the next two weeks, we are going to be diving in depth into our catechism question in the sermon, this is now a simple transition into the sermon. So I'm happy that you're with us. I'm happy that you've come together to worship Christ with us. It is a beautiful thing to gather together on the Lord's Day and worship our Lord and Savior. Uh, you know, if you've been with us for a while, you probably have heard me say or you've recognized that I preach in a very specific style. Normally, I preach what is known as expositionally or expositorily. That's the fancy word that we pay theologians to keep them in business. But what this means is typically I take a passage, normally an extended passage, and I walk verse by verse through the passage in order to expose, you know, expository, to expose what the passage is speaking on. I rarely, if ever, take a break and preach in another form more topically. However, over these next two weeks, I am taking a specific break from expository preaching in order to cover a very vital topic to the church in general. I'm attempting to do this before we reach Advent, before we reach that first Sunday in December, where we're going to jump back expositorily and study Luke 1 and 2. So let's kind of look ahead at what's going on. But I think the question is, what topic could be so important that we're taking a break from walking through a book or walking through a series of passages? Well, we're going to be very briefly, I emphasize very briefly, and from more like a 30,000-foot view, we're going to be looking at the study known as Christology. Now, as many of you might guess, Christology is the study of Christ. It's the study of who Christ is. Specifically, we're going to be diving in depth into our catechism question that we've been going through this month. We're on question 24 of the catechism. It is in your handout. We'll be looking at a lot of scripture. We'll be diving in to passages all over the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the beginning to the very end. I've included... In opening, I've included all of the references that I'm going to be touching on in your handout. So I would encourage you not to simply take my word for this. Go home, grab your Bible, look at those references, study this. Do not simply take my word on what is being said. Go home and check my work. Go to the word and test what I say. We'll be moving through these verses very quickly. So with this in mind, let's look at that catechism question. We've been going through this. I think the process is fairly simple to us now. It's fairly understood to us now. So church, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Amen. Let's go again in prayer and then let's dive into this study of this most vital doctrine to the faith. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you again and we ask for this time where we long to learn more about the truth of who you are, our Lord and our Savior, our God. We thank you for the truth that Christ is our only redeemer. We thank you for the truth that he is the eternal son of God. And we thank you that he became a man. We thank you that he continues forever to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person. Lord, we thank you this morning for these truths. We thank you that it is because of these truths that we have the hope of salvation. 
May we take these vital truths to heart and may we worship you the more because of them. Lord, as we approach this week, we are celebrating a holiday here about thanksgiving. May we truly be thankful. May we truly give thanks to you for the truth of who you are. So Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this morning we don't get so deep that your eyes go crossed. But I will warn you that the study of Christology is one that we could never exhaust. If you really think about what we do on Sunday mornings, really everything we do is pointing back to Christ. The study of Christology is something that we practice every single Sunday. We are learning more and more about our Savior through the study of his word, what he has said, what is true. We learn more about his character every single week. It is a study that we could never exhaust. But this morning, I hope to give a good outline I hope to give a simple outline of an understanding of who our Lord is between this Sunday and next Sunday. Notice I did not say easy. This is something that we have to pay close attention to. I hope to give a simple and easy to understand definition of who Christ is. This is not easy. It demands our attention. It demands our hearts. So with this said, I want to open by expressing how much I'm leaving out. If this feels in-depth to you, just know we are not even scratching the surface of the doctrine of who Christ is. But hopefully, we'll give a good scriptural overview of it. And then maybe at some later date, we can come back and study each one of these aspects a little bit more in-depth. Let's take a few minutes, and let's just break down this question. I believe this is a beautifully phrased question. I believe this is a question with rich scriptural truth behind it. So let's break this down. The question that we're going through this morning opens by saying this, the answer to it opens by saying the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. The meaning of this ought to be clear. There is no other redeemer, no co-redeemer, no partial redemption. If there is any redemption to be found, it is in Christ alone. And instantly, we ought to prick up our ears, especially here in this church, because this is the fundamental principle behind what is known as sola Christus, or Christ alone. One of our core principles as a church is that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. And what scripture is used to back this principle up? Well, it's 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Well, what's it go on to next? The next statement says, who, Christ, who being eternal son of God, became man. Christ is the eternal son of God and he became man. This is the meat and richness of this question. Christ is the eternal son of God. He is not created nor made, but begotten. He is not the first created being, but he is eternal. And this eternal son of God took on flesh. So what scripture backs this principle? Well, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word being Christ. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Christ is eternally the Son of God, and he has become man. Finally, our question closes by saying, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. This is vital. Christ contains two natures in one person, and he continues to be truly God and truly man forever. The passages that go with this are Romans 9, 5, which says to them, to the Jews, belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Luke 1, 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Colossians 2, 9. This is a very important verse. I encourage you all to memorize it. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 7, 24 through 25. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
We will be looking at these and many more passages, but contained within this question are four essential concepts. This is what we will be covering this morning and next week are these four essential concepts. First, Christ is our only Redeemer. Second, Christ is truly God. Third, Christ is truly man. And fourth, Christ has two natures in one person. Christ is the only Redeemer. Christ is truly God. Christ is truly man. And Christ has two natures in one person. This morning we'll be covering the first two of these essential concepts. Christ is our only Redeemer. And Christ is truly God. First, Christ is our only Redeemer. Understanding that Christ is our only Redeemer is central to Christianity. I do not say this flippantly, but if you deny that Christ is our only Redeemer, by definition, you cannot be a Christian. If you believe that there is more than one way of salvation, that is opposed to the biblical doctrine of salvation. We know that there is, as Peter says in Acts, there is no name given under heaven by, no other name, excuse me, given under heaven by which you must be saved. So let's look at that verse that goes with this principle again. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Scripture again and again affirms that there is only one God. Christ and the Father are not separate gods, but one true God. But this speaks of the roles given. The Father is the judge of all men. And this is a scary principle. The Father will judge all sin. We need a mediator. We need someone to stand between us and that judgment. Who will pay for our sins? Who will be our mediator? Who will stand in between us? There is only one. There is one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. If we aren't careful, we might be tempted to think that this is so basic that we need not discuss it. We may be tempted to think, Pastor, we know this. Let's just move on. This is a blessed truth that no Christian... Please hear me on this. This is a blessed truth that no Christian ought to ever examine in passivity. We ought to hear that Christ is our Redeemer with awe and praise. The fact is, God was under no obligation to give us any mediator. There's no obligation on God's part to send his son. We sinned, all of us. I think we all know that. And rightly, there is punishment for sin. All Christians ought to daily wonder at the fact that God has saved us. We were not entitled to any redemption, but we were given redemption as a gift of grace. Entitlement is the death of Christian worship. A Christian cannot be entitled. A Christian is utterly incapable of feeling pride at their salvation. It is impossible for a Christian to say, I deserve redemption. Because of this, a Christian can never look at the doctrine of redemption with indifference. If you hear that Christ is our Redeemer and that we are free from our sins because of his work, and you greet it with a yawn, I fear for you. But beyond this, we have to recognize that there are massive amounts of professing Christians who believe that Christ is not our only mediator. There are massive amounts of professing Christians who believe that Christ only did part of the work. Many professing believers believe that we can partner with Christ in redemption, that in some way we must pay for our own sins. I think we see this tendency within our own hearts, right? We think often that Christ did 99% of the work, but now we have to do our part. We have to somehow make payment for our own sins. This is wrong. We are not partners with Christ in redemption. Christ is not mostly our redeemer. Christ is our only redeemer. Christ is our only mediator. And we have to know this. We have to love this. There is no other redeemer. I cannot pay for any of your sins. I am not a co-redemptor. 
None of the saints or even Mary is a co-redemptor. There is one mediator. There is one who has paid for our sins. So I put this to you, this question this morning. Are you trusting in Christ plus anything else? This is a common question I ask. Are you trusting in Christ plus anything else to make you right with God? Are you trusting in Christ plus your works? Are you trusting in Christ plus your local pastor? Believe me, I cannot add anything to the hope of your salvation. I cannot do that. Do not trust in me. Are you trusting in Christ plus your baptism? Are you trusting in Christ plus your family, your parents' faith, the faith of saints before us? There is only one way of salvation, and that way has a name, as Jesus Christ. He alone is your mediator. He alone is your redeemer. So I charge you this morning to abandon hope in anything plus and trust only in Christ alone. Let's move on to the second truth where we'll be spending the majority of our time to the second thing we see in this pivotal statement is Christ is truly God. We must grasp the true deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is one of the most central and fundamental doctrines in all of Christianity. I don't say this lightly. If a person denies that Christ is God, by definition, they cannot be a Christian. And let me explain. That seems like a harsh statement, but let me explain this. Jesus can save us because he is God. He can stand in the gap because he is the God-man. More than this, a false Christ cannot save you. Let me illustrate. If I have a Spanish friend who is named Jesus, right? That's a fairly common Hispanic name. If I have a good friend whose name is Jesus and I trust in him for my salvation, am I saved? Are my sins paid for? No, of course not. If I name my dog Jesus and I place the hope of my eternal soul in Fido, will I go to heaven? No, of course not. In the same manner, if the Jesus that we are trusting in is not the one true Christ of Scripture, our faith is in vain. Remember, Jesus warned us in Matthew that many would come in his name. And this has been true throughout all of history. There have been many quote-unquote Jesuses. And many of these false Jesuses are included in false religions. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, all false religions reject the true Jesus of the Bible. That's what constitutes them as false religions. They all reject the true Christ, but they honor a false Christ. And we see this if we look in different belief systems, in different religions. We see that the, the, Jesus, the, the common depiction of Jesus within the New Age is that he was a moral teacher, right? And he achieved enlightenment. Jesus was one who achieved enlightenment. The Jesus that is contained within Islam is a prophet. He's a prophet similar to Muhammad, but he is not God. The Jesus of Mormonism is the child of the father and one of the father's spirit wives. He's a separate deity, a very separate God from the father. He achieved his deity. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses is the spirit brother of Satan, and he's the same person as Michael the archangel. Jesus is a created being, an angel, not eternal God. Many of the leaders within some of the charismatic movements, say that Jesus is merely another form of the Father or that Jesus was merely a man who was possessed by the Holy Spirit. All of these are false Christs. These Jesuses cannot save. They cannot pay for sin. Almost all of the ancient heresies that the church faced dealt with either denying the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. And all of these heresies, every single one of them, are still alive in the church in some form or another. A Christian ought to be able to understand and communicate the doctrine that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And these false doctrines of Christ ought to scare us because scripture is clear. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is commonly known as Paul's anathema. The word anathema means accursed or it means to be damned specifically by God. This literally means that if you, Paul is saying here, if we present a false Christ or a false way of salvation, we are anathema. Unless we feel too safe in our evangelical Christianity, according to the State of Theology survey, it's a survey I study every year, 
professing Christians' understanding of the deity of Christ is in horrible condition. This is not a fringe mistake that only a few make. In this survey, the statement is made, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but he was not God. Now, participants could either answer strongly agree, agree, strongly disagree, or disagree. And in this statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. It garnered 53% agreement across the United States as a whole. 53% of, United, of, of American citizens believe that Jesus was simply a moral teacher, but he was not God. If you filter the results out and we go, okay, what about professing Christians? Professing Christians who are members of evangelical churches. We would think it would be better, but it's not much better. Among professing Christians, agreement with this statement is 44%. 44% of professing Christians do not believe that Jesus is God. And this terrifies me because this means 44% of professing Christians deny the central doctrine of Christianity. This means 44% of professing Christians are under Paul's anathema. We may this morning feel like this is rudimentary or basic. And we may even be in danger of thinking that a sermon like this does not need to be preached. But hear me very clearly. If we get the doctrine of Christ wrong, we get all of Christianity wrong. If you are believing in or worshiping a false Christ, you are under that anathema. And beyond this, we as Christians can never proclaim the truth of who Christ is and how it applies to all of life loud enough or often enough. I pray that those numbers are a wake-up call. Do we believe the truth of who Christ is as declared in Scripture? Well, let's go to Scripture. Let's see the biblical doctrine of who Christ is. Let's look at the scriptural proof for the deity of Christ. And again, I want to tell you, we are not even scratching the surface on what Scripture says. We're only looking at a handful of proofs. We're not even going to touch on the works of Christ that demonstrate that he is divine. We're not even going to touch on the fulfilled prophecies that Christ fulfilled that prove he is God. And even though what we touch, we are not going to exhaustively cover. But let's look first at what the Bible says about the pre-existence of Christ. Because if that statement is true, Jesus was simply a moral teacher, but he was not God, then Jesus had his birth, his beginning in Bethlehem. If he was merely a man, his existence, he came into existence in Bethlehem. But Jesus did not begin his existence there. He pre-existed this, and scripture drips with reference to this. Jesus himself claims this. In John chapter 6 through 8, Jesus again repeats a statement. He says that he has come down from heaven. So listen to this, John 6, 41 through 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? See, they're asking an important question here. Jesus says, I came down from heaven. And they go, no, we know your dad and mom. Jesus is claiming to be from heaven, not just from Bethlehem. John 6, 50 through 51, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 8, 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. You can also look at John 3, 13, John 6, 38, John 6, 58, John 7, 28 through 29. This seems pretty clear that Jesus taught that he came down from heaven, that his existence did not begin in that manger, that he is the eternal son of God. But it's not just those chapters in the gospel of John. It's also contained within the book of Revelation. Revelation is filled with reference to Jesus being called something, you know, you've probably heard this, the Alpha and the Omega. This means that he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In fact, the book of Revelation opens and closes with this admission. 
with this confession. Revelation 1, 8 says, Jesus of himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 22, the end of the book. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You can also look at Revelation 1, 17, 2, 8, 21, verse 6. But it's not just the Revelation. There, there are all kinds of other references throughout all of Scripture that demonstrate that Christ was there before the beginning. John 8, 58, perhaps one of the greatest examples. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I want to pause on this one for a second because this is so central. Do you remember what God told Abraham in the wilderness? When Abraham encountered God in the burning bush and Abraham went and he asked God a question. He says, what is your name? Who will I tell the, people, the children of Israel has is sent me? Does anyone remember what did God say? What was, what was God's name that he gave? I am. I am. Right? God said, I am, or Yahweh is the divine name of God. It means, I am who I am. So what did Jesus say to the Jews in the temple when they were questioning him? He claimed to have known Abraham, and they said, how can you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. This was no mistake. In Jewish culture, you did not use this phrase. It was not even uttered for fear of committing blasphemy. So they especially never said this phrase in reference to themselves. This is why in the very next verse, John 8, 59, it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Jews knew that Jesus had just claimed the divine name of God for himself. But our emphasis here in this section is the fact that Jesus is not just claiming to be God. We'll get into that later. But he says, before Abraham was, he is claiming to be eternal God who spoke to Abraham in the wilderness. As a side note, if anyone ever tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, that's a good verse to memorize and have in your back pocket. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold, hold together. Well, hang on just a second. If Jesus made all things, this is not a trick question, could anything created come from anywhere else? If scripture says that he created all all things. Is there anything in existence that he did not create? No. Jesus, this passage is clearly saying that Jesus is not a created being, but he is the creator. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made. This puts to death the idea that Jesus is a created being. Jesus made everything. He is before all things. And all things hold together in him. That sounds like pretty inclusive language to me. All inclusive. Hebrews 1, 8 through 10. But of the Son, he says, the author of Hebrews, likely Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter in your hand. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Not only do we see the work of the Father and the Son in this passage, but how long is Christ thrown for? Forever. Who laid the foundations of all things of the earth? Whose hands made the wondrous works of the heavens? It is all by and for Christ Period. He is before all things. All things are made through him. He is the eternal and forever son of God. Amen. Isaiah 9, 6 also backs this. Micah 5, 2, John 1, 1 through 3. And so we see here that Christ was there before in eternity past when there was only God. If you were with us in Sunday school, it's like the really terrible song that the early church sang in response to the heresies, there was not when he was not. It's not a very catchy tune, but you know, that's okay. 
There was nothing before him. He is before all. But what else does scripture say? Well, perhaps a good place, another good place to go would be let's look at some times when Christ is directly called God. Again, this is only a small sampling, but it's more than enough. In Psalm 110.1, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Do you know this is the most quoted verse in the Bible? Oftentimes, it's called God's favorite Bible verse. And every time it's quoted in the New Testament, it's always quoted as referring to Christ. Jesus himself points out in Matthew 22, 45, that King David says that this Adonai is his Lord. And Jesus attributes this to himself. Yahweh said to Christ, sit at my right hand. Why? Because Jesus is the eternal son who is seated at the right hand of God. Beyond this, in scripture, if you study scripture, anytime you see Yahweh, the name of God, Typically in English translations, it's translated as all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then the lowercase Lord, which is Yahweh and Adonai, whenever you see those two paired together in the Old Testament, it is always referring to God. Always. Psalm 8 is a great example of this. But beyond this, John 8, 58, let's... We already touched on that verse, right? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am... He's calling himself the I am that was before Abraham. Romans 9 verse 5. We already touched on this one too. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is speaking to the Jews here. From them came Christ. Jesus was born as a Jew. But who does Paul say Jesus is? He is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen and amen. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. That word image there does not mean a picture or a copy in the sense of something similar. It means an exact imprint. And it's from this passage that we get the language that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. Hey, Link. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. Who does Peter say is our God and Savior? Jesus Christ. There's not much wiggle room on that one, is there? Isaiah 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is a Familiar verse, especially with Christmas coming up. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who does Isaiah say that the Messiah will be? He will be Wonderful Counselor. He will be Mighty God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Again, Jesus, the Word, the divine Logos, is shown to be there in the beginning. And look at the phrasing. The Word, Christ, was with God. Okay, clearly the language speaks of a distinction. There's the distinction between the Word and God. But then immediately, John says this, the Word was God. So the word was there with God, and the word was God. Verse 18 is the same phrasing. No one has ever seen God, the only God, or some translations say the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, has, he has made him known. No one has seen God. Okay, that makes sense. We see again and again through Scripture that any who see God die. John says that the only God who is at the Father's side has made God known. Well, the Father is God, yes. So how can the only God be at God's side? And how can that only God who is at God's side make God known? This is only coherent in the view of the Trinity. God the Son, who is at the side of God the Father, has made the Father known to us. Because no one can see the Father. John twenty twenty eight. Thomas answered him. This is one of the greatest confessions in all of Scripture. After Christ's resurrection, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My prayer is that we all echo Thomas's confession of Christ. Christ is our Lord and our God. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who obtained the church with his own blood? 
God. Who obtained the church with his own blood? Christ. They are one and the same. God the Son, Jesus Christ, shed his blood for us. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ contains the whole fullness of deity bodily. This is one of the principal verses that some of the great confessions of the faith call upon. That the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. That Christ is truly God and truly man. Titus 2.13 Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is called our great God and Savior. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high christ is the exact imprint of god's nature christ upholds the universe by the word of his power he paid for our sins he's seated on high he is our god and our king there's more than this. You can also look at Isaiah 7, 14, Matthew 1, 23, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, John 5, 18, John 10, 30, John 14, 9, Acts 16, 31 through 34, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Hebrews 3, verse 4, 2 Peter 2, 20, 1 John 5, 20, and more. Those are all instances where the Son, where Christ is referred to as God. But what about times where the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament? And the Old Testament was referencing God, but in the New Testament, it's referring to Christ. That's a pretty good example, right? Again, I'm not even touching the hundreds, possibly thousands of prophecies that Christ fulfilled, proving himself to be God. But let's just look at just two instances where this happens. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a familiar passage, right? We're getting into Advent. Matthew 1, 23, this is quoted. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But Matthew includes a little snippet. He defines for us what Emmanuel means. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. In Christ, God is with us. But perhaps even more important, the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah sees God. I'm just going to read the first three verses, but I'd encourage you, read the whole chapter of Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, the divine name of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is vital. We, we should all be fairly familiar with this passage. Isaiah is caught up in heaven, and he sees on the throne God Almighty. And the angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, the divine name, the one who is seated on the throne is the Lord God. And what does John say about this? In John 12, verses 41 through 42, listen to this. Isaiah said these things, these things we just read, because he saw his glory and spoke of him, Christ. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. John says that Jesus was the one that Isaiah saw seated on the throne. Remember, no one can see the Father and live. So how did Isaiah live? John says Isaiah saw Yahweh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, seated on the throne. You can also look at Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Luke 1, 17. Zechariah 12, verse 10, and Revelation 1, 7. Isaiah 8, 13 through 14, and 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. This is a tiny sampling of the scriptural proof of the deity of Christ. But suffice it to say that scripture from beginning to end teaches that Jesus is God. It is undeniable that the scriptures teach that Jesus is truly God. To deny this is to betray either ignorance or wickedness. And it is utterly undeniable that this is what Scripture teaches of Christ. 
Beyond this, I tried to focus on Jesus' own words about himself. I believe it is utterly undeniable that Jesus himself taught that he was God. And the reason I do this is because I want to pick up an old argument from C.S. Lewis. In his wonderful work, Mere Christianity, Lewis makes the argument that there's one of three possibilities. We read Christ's claims about himself. We read what the authors of Scripture claimed about Christ. And we are left with three options. Paraphrasing, either Christ is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Those are the three options we are left with. After examining what Jesus said and what, of, what the authors of Scripture said about Christ, those are the options put before us. Listen to Lewis's own words in this argument. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The point is we can read what Jesus said, and the options are limited. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. We must either accept what he said is true, or we must reject him altogether. It's clear from reading Christ's words that he is not a lunatic. It's obvious from reading his teachings that he possesses sound mental faculties and incredible wisdom. It's also clear he's not a liar. Everything that he said has come true and is true. So if one cannot deny his mental soundness and wisdom and truthfulness, this leaves us with one option. That Christ is exactly who he and all of scripture claims him to be. And this is why we must fall before him as Lord. That is who he is. And that is our confession. As a church, we stand on the principle of Scripture alone. And Scripture clearly teaches that Christ is God. And we all must cry out with, with Thomas the Apostle, my Lord and my God. And this is good news. Jesus is God. And because Christ is God, I think we can see several implications. There are obviously many implications, but what I see is because Christ is God, he's worthy of our worship. It is right and good that we are here to worship him. If he was not God, it would be blasphemy to worship him. Remember, there were times where the disciples were worshiped as gods. And they instantly stopped the crowds and they said, no, 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 you must not do this. Remember the angel in Revelation, John fell down and began to worship the angel. And the angel goes, stop. I'm merely a servant like you. But Christ accepts worship in scripture. He is God. And this means we must, we have an obligation to worship him as God. It means that he is the center of what we're doing this morning. It means that this service is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about what you want or think. It's not about what I want or think. It's about Christ because he is God. He is worthy of our worship. And therefore, we are obligated to give him worship. Remember the promise in scripture, before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. We will either bow willingly in love or we will bow after being crushed. Christ will be worshiped because he is the only worthy object of worship. Second, he's Lord of all. Because he is God, he is Lord of all. He has all authority. There is no authority outside of him. He is the Lord. He is God. He made all. He owns all. He is Lord. And we are to bow to him as Lord. 
Third, he's eternal king. If he is God, the maker of all, as we've seen clearly demonstrated in Scripture, that means that he is king over all. His kingdom never ends, as Scripture says. We must bow to him as king. And all earthly rulers must bow to him as king. Fourth, he is to be obeyed. Because Christ is God, he is to be obeyed. Jesus is not a moral teacher who gives merely good advice. He is God who gives commands. We must bow to him as God. We must obey Christ. As Psalm 2 says, kiss ye the son lest he be angry. Christ is God. Fifth, he is the promised Messiah. He's the promised Savior. Because Christ is God, he is the sent one who will save his people from their sins. Christ is God in the flesh. He's the fulfillment of the messianic promise. He is the promised Savior. And this means, sixth, that he can make payment for our sins. If Christ were merely a man, he could not atone for our sin. If Christ is merely a moral teacher, then I have bad news. We are still in our sin and we are not forgiven. But because Christ is God, he can make payment for our sins. As Paul says in Romans, he can be just and the justifier. No mere man can atone for sin beyond his own. But because Christ is God, his death is infinitely valuable and he is able to make atonement for our sins. He is our sacrificial lamb and he is the only lamb who could bear the wrath of God on our behalf because he is God. Our debt was owed to God and only God can bear the payment for our debt. So God himself stepped in to pay our debt on our behalf. And this means this is beautiful that he can stand in the gap between the father and us there's a passage in job in job chapter 9 where job is speaking of sin and and he says that one of the fundamental problems we have is there's no arbiter there's no one to make a case between us and God. There's no one who can stand in the middle. And, and in essence, what Job is saying, there's no one who can put their hand on me as a sinner and their hand on God as righteous. There's no one who can stand in the gap for me. And Job is lamenting this, that there's no mediator between him and God. But because Christ is truly God, because he is who he says he is, because he is truly God, he can put his hand upon God. Because he is man, he can stand in the gap for us. Jesus is the arbiter precisely because he is God. I think the application of this truth is simple. We ought to look at the deity of Christ and be infinitely thankful for who he is. And we ought to bow before him as God. If Christ is not eternal God, then we have no redemption. But because Christ is God, we have forgiveness of our sins. We have unity with him. As scripture says, we are bought with a price. And that price is the blood of God the Son. And this is beyond our understanding. None of us can truly grasp that infinite God would step in to our place and pay the debt that we owed. Who can fathom that? That our sins can be forgiven because of this. I, I, I implore you as we go this week into you know, a holiday of celebrating Thanksgiving, I encourage you to meditate and just to think, to process through the very fact that Jesus is God means that we can be forgiven of our sins. That is more than enough reason to be thankful. But more than this, more than merely being thankful for this, I, I implore you, Christ is God. Bow before him, worship him. It's not enough to know these things. Knowing the truth of who Christ is demands action on our parts. Because Christ is who he says he is, we must bow to him as king. We must worship him, we must obey him. He deserves our worship. He's worthy of it. He is our Lord and our God. 
And that is reason to be thankful, to rejoice, and to obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who, as Philippians said, not to skip ahead to next week, but as Philippians said, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, that Christ, eternal God, stepped into flesh to take our place as the payment for our sin. And because he was God, he could bear that payment. So Lord, we thank you for the truth of who Christ is. May we take this truth from here and may we apply it to our lives. May we worship you. May we be thankful to you. Lord, I think so often we go into this time of thanksgiving and we don't think about who we are to be thankful to. So this week, may we go into this with thankfulness that you are who you say you are, that you can redeem us from our sins. So Lord, watch over us, guard us. I pray especially for those who will be traveling this week. Will you watch over them? Will you guard them? But Will you, in our hearts, create a sense of thankfulness for who you are? May we take this truth to heart. We ask these things and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, rather than a closing benediction, I included it in your handout. I encourage you, when you go home, to read the Nicene Creed. It is one of the most beautiful statements on the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. It was written at a time when heresies were popping up in the church about the deity and the humanity of Christ. So I encourage you to read that. Read this ancient statement of faith and then study the various verses that we have covered. But this morning I'd ask that you stand with me and let's close out in worship, in the doxology, which as we read, second to last line, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We learned about the sun. Let us sing the doxology this morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and